Good evening to you all and welcome uh, to this evening's Global Policy Dialogue on the pressing theme of global imbalances and consequential, as it were, social challenges. This dialogue is part of a series organized by Global Policy which seeks to bring together some of today's most prominent academics and practitioners to discuss issues of pressing concern with the aim, of course, of advancing our understanding of those issues and making policy recommendations about them. I have the pleasure and the privilege tonight of introducing two of the world's, I consider them at any rate, two of the world's leading commentators on economics, development and finance. Jean-Michel Savarino, who is sitting immediately uh, to, uh, to the left, and next to him, uh, Martin Wolf. Jean-Michel Severino was, until very recently, Inspector General at the French Ministry of Finances. Now, that is what I was going to say, but he's just told me he has a new job. So you want to just say what your new job is, so everyone knows? Uh, <coughs> good evening tonight to, uh, to all. I'm running a small private equity fund dedicated to African SMEs. Uh -huh. So... That is the current position, so I must now say he was formerly Inspector General at the French Ministry of Finances, and before that, he was the hugely successful director of the France's International Development Agency, the AFD, where he presided for over some ten, some ten years. And going back in time before that, he was director in charge of international development at the French Ministry of Cooperation and vice president for Asia at the World Bank. He has published widely in French and the international press. His newest book, which will be published this September, is called Africa's Moment, you know, a profoundly new reading of Africa's uh, development. And details of this book are around uh, and, uh, in, the, in the auditorium and should be in front of you all. Martin Wolf, of course, is Associate Editor and Chief Economics Commentator at the Financial Times and, in my view, just the best at this job in the world. He recently served, or was recently serving, I should say, as member of the UK government's independent commission on banking. The commission is developing policy recommendations to reduce systemic risk in the banking system, to seek to reduce systemic risk in the banking system, and a full report is due in September of this year. Martin is the author of several books and you know, numerous articles on global economics and political economy, including in 2004, a book that uh, was hugely successful called Why Globalization Works. He then subsequently, uh, his more recent book was called Fixing Global Finance, How to Curb Financial Crisis in the 21st Century, a topic at, at the heart of today's discussions. Jean-Michel Alsavarino will speak for 20 minutes. Martin Wolf will then follow for 20 minutes. We will then have a discussion here in front of you all before opening the discussion to all of you. So please join me in giving our guests a very warm welcome. Good evening again to all. Uh, I'm very happy to be here and honored to have this opportunity to, dis to discuss with uh, Martin. I already told him that I, was, I had a big advantage in this discussion tonight because I'm reading him every day, so I know what he thinks on many issues, and he, has, uh, uh, he's, he should uh, know much less about me than I, than I do. So, but let me, uh, maybe as we have a little time uh, and we have to uh, come straight to the point, to uh, start, uh, allow me to start with a personal point. I was born in, in Africa, in Ivory Coast. I was raised there. And 
in my early years, uh, in as well as my, when I was a teenager, I was captured by poverty, the misery of Africa. Those images had a strong influence on me, and I lived with them for forever. And they have been the support of my own personal engagement in development, not only around Africa, but against poverty all around the world. And I've done that by idealism. Uh, no, uh, the uh, obs ob no, being in contact with poverty is something that you know is, is uh, provokes you irrational moves. Um, they can be mystical, they can be religious, they can be uh, political, they can be social. Anyway, you cannot remain indifferent. And for many years in my career and job, I've thought that I was just helping doing the good, the best. You no. Know? Uh, alleviating poverty, bringing as many people as possible uh, to uh, better standards of living, improving their environment, and so forth. Uh, and the, the situation was very clear. Uh, what uh, we were doing with all the colleagues that were involved uh, in the development area, in the private sector, in the public sector, in, the, in international organizations, in NGOs, etc., we were doing something that will bring good and better for the world and for all. If countries, I couldn't even imagine that the fate of developing countries would have some impact on our fate. When I say our fate, I mean OECD countries' fate, Britain's fate, US fate, France's fate, Italy's my home, uh, uh, cultural countries' fate. And uh, over the uh, years, I started having some doubts. Those doubts started to come to my mind when I was running at the World Bank the Asian operations. This is when Martin and I met. Uh, because obviously, what was taking place in Asia around the financial crisis was something that was interlinked with uh, the rest of the world. And to an extent, the Asian crisis was threatening already global uh, uh, standards. But of course, I had no idea that a few years, a few years down the road, we would see the rest, the reverse happening, and the industrialized countries threatening the equilibrium of the whole world, and especially some of the developing countries we are going to talk about. Uh, but then my doubts raised even more when I started running the French Development Agency, which is a development bank. And let me start with a very telling experience which took place in the very first months after I arrived. Uh, in our private sector subsidiary, we were uh, discussing uh, possible investment in um, corporation in Tunisia. And uh, we, uh, some of our board members started opposing the investment because they thought that behind this investment there was a relocation issue of French industrial activities in Tunisia. By the way, it was a very successful, very brilliant uh, investment in the industrial sector with a lot of jobs to be created in Tunisia, uh, with a lot of good, I mean, that would be made in the type of uh, spirit that I'd been uh, uh, living, experiencing. And so we had a very long debate about that. Uh, and at some stage, one of our board members waved his hands one of our independent board members coming from the private sector and said, you know, look guys, uh, let's have you know, uh, uh, an in-depth discussion, a real in-depth discussion about that. Where do you want the Arabs to be? Do you want them in Marseille or do you want them in Tunis? A freezing silence. Uh, 
you know, went, you know, came uh, all over the room. And then within five minutes, we discussed that we would go ahead with this investment. By the way, 10 years later, it goes very well, thank you. It's one of the very successful things that we did in Tunisia. So behind all this, you know, with this discussion came from me as an illuminating point that we had come to a world where we had to balance the faith of unqualified people in France and unqualified people in Tunisia. And that for the first time, we were caught in a kind of paradox, a kind of uh, 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 contradiction that we could not escape from and raising questions that we could not answer. Because if you're a policymaker or if you are a development bank, how do you want to answer a question where you ask to determine whether job locations should be in Tunisia or in Marseille? Based on what? Uh, uh, you know, and s given the fact that simple economics uh, cannot uh, provide answers to what are also very deep uh, political and uh, ethical questions. So what came to my mind progressively over the years, the months, thinking at this issue and meeting again and again this case uh, over the month, not you know, on a theoretical ground, but on a very practical ground on having to decide very specific investments on very specific countries and being met with very concrete questions about who was doing what and where. Uh, dealing also with the migration problems and the increasing tensions that they were creating in France and the lack of response in terms of political or economic that we were able to provide to the type of challenges that they were raising. So based on that, I started thinking at what were the reasons for which we had got to this situation, which was a kind of real lose-lose situation, and to a sense we was jeopardizing everything that I had believed in over a very extended uh, professional life. And it came to me that when we were considering the development models that had taken place uh, in, uh, since the uh, 50s, let's say, uh, we had been uh, faced with a very specific growth pattern and successful growth pattern that uh, had, to some extent, that we had not realized the impacts of. And what was this growth pattern? How, what, what, how could we characterize, uh, very roughly speaking, the economic models that had been uh, so successful? Because, and let me just mention that point, they have been extremely successful. Development is the success of the 20th century. Of course, the number of absolute poor on this planet has kept growing, and it is going to, it, it is going to grow again, unfortunately, for reasons for a reason that I'm going to come back to. But in relative terms, poverty has declined, and the number of people who have gone out of poverty since, you know, for the past 50 years, is equal to the number of people that have gone out of poverty since, you know, Neanderthal, okay? So the, the, the economic success of, of the growth models that have taken, that have been shaped in developing countries has been just absolutely tremendous, tremendous. And by the way, I was very happy and proud of that before I started to think at some of the consequences of what had taken place uh, during those uh, past uh, three or four decades. So basically, what has happened? I think four models have been shaped and have, have developed uh, in, in that period of time. One we, we are very familiar with is the uh, raw material or the oil-based, uh, um, fossil-based um, 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 
or natural resources, natural resources based model. We know that by heart. You know, the uh, uh, owners of natural assets in this world have been rewarded by our appetite for oil, fossil resources in general, and they, by the way, will continue to be rewarded by our appetite for natural resources in general, whether it's uh, air, water, uh, biodiversity, uh, uh, raw material, and so forth. Uh, what we have seen also is those uh, a very impressive export-led models uh, uh, spreading. Uh, the first country that has uh, entered into this model has been Japan after the Second World War. It has been followed by Korea, by uh, East, um, Eastern Asia, and ultimately in Asia by China. But this model has spread throughout the world. It's probably the most successful model in terms of creation of uh, jobs, uh, wealth, of jobs and, and, and wealth. The third model that has taken place more recently is the services export model. India has been leading the way there and has been fo followed also by a growing number of countries that have uh, developed uh, services, whether it's in the IT, whether it's in the uh, medical area, whether it's in financial sector and so forth, all dedicated to uh, the uh, global uh, industry. And finally, I would say the ultimate model has been the uh, uh, man exportation model. Uh, <clears throat> immigration is uh, uh, very much seen as an individual trajectory. People try to escape poverty, uh, revolutions, uh, uh, political repression, and so forth. Actually, it has become also an economic model. You see, you have in this world about more than 20 countries in the world that uh, earn more than 10% of their GDP from remittances. And those remittances have reached a level uh, in our world economy that competes not only with ODA, let's not even speak about that, but with private financial flows, especially uh, FDI. This is a completely new story. You know, in the time my family migrated from Italy to France, when you were leaving a country, you would never think you would return, and you would never even think at sending money to your family. You, know, you left your, your family starving, and you tried to uh, make your life in your own country, in, in your new, new country. Uh, the global world has changed that. You can send back money thanks to the financial system. You can come back to your country thanks to the transportation system, etc. So things are going uh, in a much more fluid way. And this has led some countries to build a very strong, I would say, industrial specialization around the exportation of men. Uh, the, the caricature of this model is Philippines, but you have several of them in, in Africa and in uh, Latin America. There is one common feature around those four families of growth model, apart from the fact that they are incredibly successful. And you know, this first feature is that they are, they are using, uh, uh, it's, it's a growth model from the poor to the rich. They are all using the gap of revenues that you have in this global world between poor countries and rich countries, and they set themselves as providers of services, men, uh, and um, uh, goods, and natural products to the wealthy of this world. Uh, and by the way, this is completely contradictory with what the economic theory would have said about the growth patterns 
For instance, and was saying about those growth patterns when, for instance, I was studying myself economics in my young days. What would you have heard in those days? You know, development is about a lack of investment, hence a lack of savings. And uh, as a consequence, you should uh, uh, increase the level of, of, save, of uh, uh, investments by capital flows to poor countries coming from wealthy countries. And this would accelerate growth. And by the way, this would be a very balanced growth because by, in the course of providing capital, you would raise local markets that would import equipments. And the balance of payments of both poor and um, uh, uh, rich countries would be, would be balanced overall. Now the second feature uh, of well, this, this story has proved completely wrong and the countries that have followed these models have more or less failed in the 20th century. Latin America uh, domestic oriented market uh, models have proved to have led to financial catastrophes and they have been replaced by a new generation of those uh, export export markets. Now those, mark, those models uh, that have proved to be so efficient against the old theories uh, have had also a very important share a very important feature. They are building very important uh, uh, balance of payment uh, uh, accidents. And it's not just China. I mean, it's all models in all countries. And of course, we are not very ex extremely interested by the uh, 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 accidents of balance of payments of Fiji because of the size of Fiji, but we are looking at the size of the balance of payment imbalances of China. Now, China and Fiji, it's the same story, only the volume uh, changes and some of the, uh, and the number of people uh, in, in, those, in those countries. Now, one very important feature, and, and as a consequence, one of the very important feature of those development models, successful development models in the 20th century and the beginning of our century, is that it's a model where the poor have funded the rich. They have funded the rich to become their clients, ultimately, because at some stage, I'm going to come back to that, we have had no choice in order to sustain the level of consumptions in OECD countries to borrow, roughly speaking, from uh, our providers uh, of goods, services, uh, people. So not only countries are provided, the developing countries have uh, boosted our growth by providing us cheap goods, services, and so forth, but they have also funded our level uh, of uh, revenues. And this, this is something that is absolutely incredible, amazing, that no theory would have predicted 20 or 30 years about the status of our global world. Now, the question about that uh, is, can it be sustainable? Will it last? And if you look uh, at comments, in the press, in general, or in books, people tell you, yes, each and every forecast about what is going to be the shape of the world in 10, 20, or 30 years down the road starts, is built on the assumption that this growth pattern is going to continue, that emerging countries are going to take a larger and a larger share of the GDP, 
Uh, and uh, by the way, uh, what we are experiencing this year is often quoted as exemplary of uh, the direction in which we are moving because we are this year in 2011, the first year in our world history where the combined GDP of emerging countries or the non-OECD world will be higher than the GDP of uh, the OECD countries. So we just assume that the river is going to flow in the same direction and basically nothing is going to happen. Now here comes the big point and we should consider the possibility that this growth path is not going to last, is not going to continue, and it's not going to be sustainable. And what reason, cross-cutting reason, would we explain that we would move into this unsustainability uh, situation? Well, the big reason is what I would, we would call with Olivier Ré, who is my co-author and with whom we are working on all those issues. So the real reason is that is what we call the inversion of scarcities. We have lived for thousands and thousands of years, and to cons considering a smaller period of time, since the 1830s, when the Industrial Revolution started in Great Britain, we have lived in a world where man was rare and nature abundant. And this has been the base on which our growth patterns have been built. Man was rare, so you would have to invest in it. You could invest in it, and you had to invest in it. And nature was abundant, so you could really use it as much as you could. And one very economic consequence as of it is that one, natural good had no price, and second, natural resources in general, or natural products, were very cheap. Our energy has been very cheap. Our biodiversity has been very cheap. We have been able to spoil it without any problem for our, our growth. But this time is over. Man has become extremely abundant and will be even more abundant in the coming 40 or 50 years. In the coming 30 or 40 years, once more, will grow by about at least 3 billion additional people, all of them in uh, non-developing uh, in, in OECD countries. So this inversion of scarcity and you know what is important, you know, frankly one billion people more or less do not matter at all for the survival of our species. Now one billion hectares of forest matter a lot for the survival of our species. And the same for most of the natural resources that we are using for our growth. Now this inversion of scarcities uh, have a transmission to sustainability and to the sustainability of growth through, through three uh, channels. One is the macroeconomic channels. The large economic imbalances that we have built are going to widen because developing countries want to follow the uh, export or the outward-oriented models that have been so successful in the past. And no, this imbalance that is being built has absolutely no importance if you are Fiji and you want to export men's services uh, or um, uh, goods to the United States. But if you come to a situation where the United States would like to export men's services and goods to Fiji, then you have a big problem. And we are building a world where Fiji is the OECD 
and uh, the OECD is the United, the, the non-OECD and emerging countries are United States, to put it in a very characterial way. So this imbalancing, imbalances in the demographic situation and the fact that we want to follow a model that cannot be absorbed by uh, the uh, shift in uh, the relative size of markets is going to bring a major threat in the, in, 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 for, for the growth pattern. But the social imbalances are completely linked with that. Uh, one of the main reasons for which we came into this type of crisis is, is for instance, illustrated by Raghuram Rajan in a great book dedicated to the United States and called Fault Lines. Raghuram Rajan, who used to be the chief economist of the IMF, is now professor in economics at Chicago. And one of the things that he explains in this book is that the underinvestment in man and the uh, increasing inequalities in the United States have been one of the routes by which the underconsumption, you know, uh, consumption has become so weak and one of the only ways that government policies under Bush has found in order to support growth, growth has been to promote over-indebtedness of even the poorest in order to provide the support for, uh, for, for, for growth. And as we know, uh, the financial crisis burst out through this type of uh, mechanism. Now, this type of situation, we have it across each and every country, uh, OECD country. Uh, the, we, we, our growth models and our economies have not been able to increase the level and the qualification of men in our societies to a level that would be commensurate to the level of our revenues. And the level of the qualification level of somebody who goes out of I mean, secondary education in France or Great Britain does not allow for the type of salary, of type of revenue that is commensurate with our GDP per capita, etc. So to a certain extent, all our OECD societies are now structured around one small group of people who can cope with international competition, get the benefits out of it, get the high revenues out of it, and direct and indirect revenue uh, redistribution mechanism allow the rest of the population to, uh, to, to share. But this is a very... Um, uh, a very frightening uh, equilibrium, uh, which, by the way, explains the relocation of work, the lack of competitiveness of uh, more and more branches of our e e economy. And the same ha happens in developing countries. One very important feature of this uh, outward expense-based uh, uh, models is that they're also very based on inequalities, and they sustain and support them in a way that we'll be, we'll be uh, happy to comment. And finally, the, the, the late, third and latest channel is the environmental crisis. Uh, we, uh, we have come to a stage where uh, the uh, price of uh, uh, natural resources, not only the fossils, uh, because we would include land, for instance, in that, is putting a cap on the, on the growth pattern, is changing the possibility to continue this, uh, those, uh, those models. So if we, think to, uh, if we think this is correct, and this will, will lead to my very last words and conclusion, then we have probably to think at reshifting uh, the way we think at development models and the social policies in developing countries like in OECD countries. One, of course, it's very difficult to talk about global policies while at the same time trying to capture Fiji, the United States, Great Britain, Burkina Faso, uh, and Brazil. 
So you could only mention very broad policy directions that we would follow across the board. One very important policy direction that we would like to follow is to, to rebalance, to reinverse the, the, those scarcities. You know, go back to a situation when man was rarer and natural, nature more abundant. And there are many ways by which you want to do that, but a very important way that you have to take, uh, to undertake to do that, is by rebalancing the fiscal uh, uh, and, and systems in the world. Basically, our fiscal systems across the board in developing countries as well as UNEC countries has been based on the idea that you could uh, untax, you, you could tax nature. Uh, you could, uh, <clears throat> you, you, you were subsidizing nature and the way it is being used, so you subsidize fossil fuels, you subsidize uh, energy and so forth, and you would tax man uh, in, all, uh, in, in, in a wide variety of means. Now, if we think that men have become abundant and nature is rare, then the logics would be for us to tax nature and detax man. And if you think at all the consequences that this very simple and uh, characteristic principle uh, uh, entails, then they are extremely broad-based, wide, and will lead to complete rethinking of how we uh, deal with per, uh, public policies and tax policies. A second, I will be very brief, a second way you want to, do, to go is to uh, rebalance growth and uh, to base it more on domestic markets. This is a very difficult thing to do, and uh, it's very difficult for the countries that have started to base their growth on export-oriented model. Uh, uh, let's think at the history of the Plaza uh, agreements, for instance, in Japan, but it's also very difficult for the countries that are willing to uh, experience fast growth because those export-oriented models are the only ones that we have on the table for, to promote for developing countries. And if you think at all the very precise consequences that it entails on the, on the type of economic policies that you have to, um, to develop, to implement in order to change this course, then you would find that it goes against most of the package of policy advice that, for instance, the World Bank, the IMF, is putting on the table, even right now, for those countries. And finally, and let me just end with that comment. Finally, <laughs> third. We'll have to rethink at social justice. In the world that, is going to, uh, that we are going to experience, there will be not only one billion people uh, to take uh, Paul Collier's uh, uh, bottom billion uh, reference, but probably between two and three that will be below $2 a day of revenues by 2050. Uh, this will not only be a challenge to ethics, a challenge to politics, a challenge to security, but it's also going to be a huge challenge to economics. Uh, I don't know of any integrated commercial space that has been developed over the years without redistribution policies that allow it to, to be socially and economically sustainable for the losers of the game. If our world is not able to establish this type of redistribution mechanism and to uh, act as a global integrated commercial, consistently as a global integrated commercial space, then the balance of our growth, its speed, its pace, and its distribution will be at stake and will pay a heavy price for that. Thank you very much.
Well, thank you very much for your very elegant and, uh, and uh, uh, serious account of these issues. And uh, I, I didn't press you too hard to, uh, to stop because I think everyone was extremely interested in, in hearing the, the, the conclusions of your argument, and we'll come back to them later. But the floor, Martin. Thank you. I sort of hope that there was a presentation here. Is there a presentation here, or didn't somebody... Sorry? Do I have to do something thrilling? Okay, wonderful. Um, I actually had been sent uh, a set of utterly brilliant slides by Jean-Michel, so I produced a few pedestrian ones to match him. And then in this wonderful way of uh, uh, organization, he decided to change the question. Uh, he, didn't, he, did, he didn't do the presentation, so I, here I am left high and dry. I was, I was thinking, um, as Jean-Michel spoke, that um, and it's something I felt very often that if France didn't exist, we really would have to invent it, because <laughs> the the sort of speech you've heard and the way it's done, I've heard, I've been around quite a long time, quite often from French policymakers and intellectuals, and only from French policymakers and intellectuals, and and and. And the idea that something like this could be provided by, say, and I won't mention names, by senior of treasury officials in the UK um, sort of defies all imagination. It's inconceivable that anyone would dare to, to create models so subtle, so elaborate, uh, uh, so thought-provoking, uh, and, uh, and often, as often, I have to say, also a little bit puzzling. This is, this is, this is something so thrillingly and wonderfully um, French and, and admirable. So I, I, I knew that it would be a challenge to follow, and I, I'm going to do something pretty plebeian and pedestrian. What I will, and also one or two of you here, I apologize, have seen some of these pictures, so uh, I apologize to them too, but not most of you. It turns out that in a rather different way, I'm going to say very similar things to the, what has just been said. Uh, and since, as I've frequently told people, um, when I used to worry, when I started to being a journalist in my early 40s, uh, I went to the editor of our newspaper and said, but how can we write this today? We, we wrote this in our editorial a week ago, and he said, that's not a problem. Repetition is the essence of journalism. So you're gonna, you've heard it once brilliantly, and now you're going to hear it uh, another time, or similar things, uh, in a more pedestrian way. This is what I want to talk about. I'm going to ask, uh, deal with... Um, what I think, what I really want to do is my view of some of the really big things that are going on in the world. In many cases, they don't lead to a definite conclusion. Um, I'm going to come to some at the end, and I think many of the questions Jean Michel has raised and the way he's raised them are the right ones. But um, I, in a way, it would just be a different way of looking at it. They are first about the great convergence, which is what he called, what I call the growth process that he's talking about. Then I'm going to talk a little bit about technology, which he actually didn't talk about, um, but I think is incredibly important in thinking about where we might be going over the next half century. Then he also didn't talk much about aging, which I think is a very big social and universal process now. We are completely changing the nature of our societies. And over the next half century, it could be very exciting and also um, very challenging. Um, I'm going to talk very briefly about poverty and inequality. Um, I largely agree with his analysis, just put some numbers up. 
Then I'm going to talk about the resource problem, which I do think is an absolutely central issue, uh, which I intend to devote a lot of time to over the next 10 or 20 years, if I'm still able to work over that period. And then I'm going to talk a bit about adjustment problems and then a few challenges for policy. This will be quite quick, and we'll just give you a headline. The first point is uh, Jean-Michel's growth story. Jean-Michel was absolutely right that growth has taken off across the world in the last half century. But what's been happening in the last decade is something completely different. Completely different. We are on a global accelerator. Now what I've done in this chart, which I found very helpful, I've taken the IMF's latest data for the growth of the world, which is blue, the advanced economies in aggregate and the emerging countries. They're also at purchasing power parity. He's already used purchasing power parity numbers. Since you're all at the LSCE, every one of you can explain what PPP is, so I don't need to explain it. And uh, so what these numbers tell you is what, it was the, what was the average of the 10 years previous to and including the year in, that I'm showing in this chart uh, of the growth of the emerging world, the de developed world and the world as a whole. And you will see in uh, the 80s they all grew at the same rate. You will see that in the 90s, which is, look at the year 2000, that will show basically in the 90s, the differentials were maybe a percentage points. And you will see that today the differential is basically one and three quarters percent a year in the developed world and six percent in the emerging world and expected to go to seven uh, as the growth rate, as the time passes. So basically the growth rate differential is three to three and a half to one. So when uh, Jean-Michel was talking about the reversal and the rise of the developing, the emerging world, the developing world, um, he is, of course, completely right, and the, but the change is incredible. Just to remind you that if the growth of an economy is 7% a year, roughly speaking, it doubles every 10 years. So what this is saying is that at the rates of growth the IMF believes are, going to, are, are now and are going to continue, the entire size of the emerging economies in aggregate is going to double every 10 years. This really is a profoundly new world. And it has, as he, as he also said, the having extraordinary consequences in terms of the relevant we relative weight of the world economy. Back in 2000, the relative size of the developed countries in aggregate was roughly the same as in 1992. And nothing would change. And if you'd gone further back, it wouldn't have been all that different. Be, it would have gone down a bit, but not much, at about two-thirds of the world economy. The, the advanced world economies, which contain 12% um, of the world's population, were utterly dominant. Uh, and the rest uh, were crammed, all the rest of the world economy was crammed into uh, about a third of the world economy. Now fast forward to 2010 and 2015 and you can see the share of the advanced countries expect to plummet to 47% from 63 and the entire difference is made up by Asia and of course it's actually being made up, two thirds of that is being made up of China and one third is India. This is really about the rise of China and India. The speed with which this is happening is something I think that people in the developed world find very difficult to grasp. All the remaining regions of the emerging world, by the way, are growing roughly in line with the world economy. Their relative weight is hardly changing. Then I thought, 
this is a very, very important point, which I think came out of his story, but can perhaps be put in a slightly different way. There are many different ways of looking at this. I've been become interested in what I refer to myself as the emerging world G7. By that I mean simply the seven largest economies in the emerging world at PPP. And these are the seven largest economies in the, in the emerging world at PPP, Russia, Brazil, Indonesia, Turkey, Mexico, China, and India. I think they're probably roughly economies you would expect. And the question I was, have been asking myself is um, very much related to this big discussion, a subject he didn't mention, about the middle income trap, uh, namely, is development going to continue, is how well have countries done over the last 20 years, which we think of as a good period for the emerging world, in terms of catching up on the average productivity level, the average output per head of the world's largest rich country, the US. So the US throughout is, is a benchmark of 100%. And I've taken these seven countries from 1989 to 2010 and taken the ratio of their GDP per head at PPP uh, compared to um, uh, this uh, to compare to the uh, US and I've done it in logs because that well first of all the slope shows the rate of catch up and second it allows you to see that there can be quite large changes at the bottom and in essence what this chart tells you is that really and truly there are only two economies that are rising of these seven and it's China, it just happens to be the two countries that contain roughly two and a half billion people have uh, slightly under 40% of the world's population, which is, of course, three times as big as the entire developed world. China, first and foremost, which over these 20 years has gone from 5% of US GDP per head levels to 20%, just staggering relative change. India, which has gone from 3% to about 8%. Um, Indonesia went up, then it went down after its crisis and is basically back now to where it was at the crisis. Brazil is a long downswing which has been partially reversed. It's basically back now more or less to where it was 20 years ago. Turkey has made enough progress in the year in the 2000s to to be above its previous peak, but it's not much higher. Russia, of course, you know exactly what's happened, and Mexico is probably the most disappointing of all these countries. Essentially, the global convergence story is a story of two countries, the countries that really matter. Of course, there are a number of quite small ones, which I'm not going to undeny, deny some very interesting other cases, Chile and so forth, but it really is about the Asian giants. I think it's very, very important to understand that. Of course, they're not just two countries, they're two supercontinents. Second big thing I wanted to talk about is this technology thing, which has really fascinated me because I think uh, what this chart shows you is, as, as Mike Spence points out in his most recent book, it's, it's the, the death of the idea of the digital divide. I'm overstating that as he overstated it, but it is quite remarkable. This shows the major modern communications technologies in terms of their penetration per 100 inhabitants uh, since between 2000 and 2010. So this is a 10-year chart, and I suggest you look at mobile phone subscriptions from 10 per 100 inhabitants to just under 80 per 100 inhabitants of the entire world in 10 years. No technology in the history of humanity has penetrated at this rate. And as I like to say, it shows that apart from the other thing every human being wants to do, we really do like to talk. <laughs> uh, the, 
the of course there are lots of people in this room which are probably carrying two or three of these devices so I understand this doesn't mean that 80% of humanity has them but the fastest growing penetration of mobile telephony in the world is Africa as I'm sure Jean-Michel would tell you and what this means and I've also put up the internet and mobile broadband and all the rest of it but if you think about technology and you think about the development of technology in essence, this is going to mean, surely, in very plausibly, that in 15 years from now, pretty well everyone in the planet will have in their hand some sort of smart device which will give them access to essentially all the information humanity possesses. And this is going to be a world so different from anything we have experienced before as to truly be unimaginable. And I think it's affecting the economy, the society, the politics in all sorts of profound, exciting, and disturbing ways simultaneously. You cannot understate this. And this chart just shows for the internet, uh, the users of the internet since 2000, between 2005 and 2010. And the big point it will bring to you, of course, is the internet is now an Asian Entity. It's essentially an increasingly Asian. The number of Asian users is double that of either North America or Europe. So this is the technological transformation that we're living in. It really has to be stressed how profound and deep it is, how many implications it has for us. The third revolution we're living through is we really are moving into societies older than anything we've ever known. And everybody is. Uh, least so in the least developed countries down on the right hand side but these are the United Nations standard forecasts we're obviously assuming no uh, mass famines catastrophes obviously we're assuming that uh, in anything in, of this kind but this is the proportion of the population expected to be over 65 uh, in the developed world in 2000 it was 14 percent uh, by 2050, it's expected to be 27%. 27% of the population over 65. Um, uh, that is quite a thought, is it not? Interestingly, the emerging world as a whole is expected to be in 2050 where the developed countries are today. You can see that. The world you share, you can see uh, the least developed uh, countries are changing least for reasons we know. And here I just throw up a few countries which are really very interesting. Uh, I put Germany up as a very representative, relatively fast aging European country. Italy, Spain, Japan would be very similar, almost a third of the population over 65. The US less so. China will pass the US in terms of its age structure in this dimension uh, by the middle of this century. China will become a very old society. Brazil less so. India least. The demographic change is a completely different sort of world. Uh, again, it creates fiscal challenges, social challenges. Who's going to look after all these people? Where are they going to come from? Does it necessarily entail enormous ongoing immigration simply to, for, so that these people, the elderly people, can be looked after? Or will they just all, are we all going to work till our, we're 90 and drop dead when we're 91? This is, I mean, the. How are the European governments going to manage their impossible fiscal positions in this country? Huge challenges here, just gigantic. The fourth issue that I wanted to talk about is poverty. Um, Jean-Michel said something about it. I just put up the, I've just got the very, very latest World Bank statistics um, uh, from uh, Martin Revalian's group. 
on the number of people living below $125 a day at PPP. Uh, uh, sorry, the proportion of the population living in China, East Asia as a whole, Sub-Saharan Africa, in India, South Asia, Latin America, and the total world. And it does bring out, as he said, the very, very steep decline in the proportion of the world's population living in extreme poverty, led, of course, by the, the miracle, quote-unquote, of China and East Asia, which was his export-led growth model, which he, which he has correctly defined as the world's most successful developed model, much less successful in Africa as sub-Saharan Africa. There were some signs of improvement lately. India is somewhere in between, uh, clearly an improvement, but not enough to prevent the absolute numbers of people in this state in India remaining roughly constant, constant. But I think most development economists looking, and I was one once, 20 years ago, 30 years ago at this sort of picture, would have felt that things didn't go too badly. But just to bring out another point he mentioned, and uh, again, it's the factual side of the very important points he made. This is some OECD data on what's been happening to um, the distribution of income among the working population in the developed world. Uh, and they just compare the mid-80s to the mid-2000s using the Gini coefficient, a very standard measure with lots of problems with it, but it's a very simple one for a range of developed countries and we will see with the signal and perhaps not such surprising exception of France uh, the, uh, there has been a, a, quite a noteworthy increase in inequality in every one of these countries surprisingly though from a low base really quite a big increase in Germany I'm not quite sure what's driving that it may be unification I, it could well be in fact that that's the big factor and of course to accept exceptionally high levels by developed country standards and this is just remember among the working popula population of working age in the United States. So it is clear as he said and there's lots of evidence of this that what is ever happening to the global distribution of income we could come to this that within the developed world and in most of the developing world though not emerging world inequality within the population and particularly among workers is rising. Um, uh, sorry I went the wrong way. Then the fifth subject I wanted to raise, and he again he mentioned it, but it, just to give you an idea and to fill it on one aspect. I'm not going to talk about climate change because he, he pointed this at very big, but just the, what I think of as the single most obvious commercial resource need, which is energy. Ours is an energy-consuming uh, uh, civilization. I've argued in a number of columns that the Industrial Revolution was an appalling name for what we happened in the early 19th century. It should have been called the Energy Revolution because that was really what it was. It was the, the discovery that, that Ricardo's land wasn't just on the surface, it was under it. And we could burn this stuff. And if we burned it uh, in large enough quantities and we were clever enough with what we, you did with it, we could create an unimaginable number of goodies like this. And uh, that's what we've done. So you see here uh, a quite astonishing chart. I suggest you just look at the emerging country, the non-OECD uh, figures in this. This is the BP, very famous BP uh, analysis of the primary energy demand in billion tons of, t tons of oil equivalent. Uh, it could be anything, but without increasing use of energy, our civilization doesn't work. And what they are saying is if you look at the emerging world, you assume China and India and perhaps others start growing rapidly, they are simply bound to use much, much more than today and dominate the growth, and that will drive uh, uh, inevitably 
enormous pressures on resources and enormous pressures on climate change because climate change is simply the, the sink side of this uh, process. When you think what, you know, my favorite statistic in development at the moment is that China is now producing 20 million vehicles a year. Very soon it will produce 40 million vehicles a year. When China has the same vehicle fleet as the Europe has, it will have 700 million vehicles and the India will also have 700 million vehicles and the demand for oil at the, at the, at the relatively efficient um, European use of oil will be 200 million barrels a day. Good luck. Uh, and, and this is, of course, in my view, why commodity prices have exploded, driven by this demand. There was the, this shows the major commodity prices in the last seven or eight years, and this is essentially a underlying and a real demand associated with that incredible explosion of growth that I showed you in the beginning in the emerging world, which is driven by the giants. And the final thing is my favorite little theme, but it's very, very small in this context, which he mentioned, that uh, a strange feature of the world system, it's something I've written a lot about, but I don't want to argue it's the most important thing, is that when these emerging countries became much richer and more productive than ever before, they decided the best thing they could possibly do was to give their spare savings to the United States and peripheral Europe. The United States and peripheral Europe are all the capital importing side of these global imbalances, which we decided we couldn't do anything better with than um, uh, run huge financial de deficits in the household sector, uh, which we borrowed from dud banks and invested in houses nobody wanted, and, uh, and in the end uh, we ended up with this colossal financial catastrophe. The imbalances have been squeezed as a result, but they remain very large, and they remain very large largely because of this which is the accumulation of foreign currency reserves in the, in the emerging world over the last 11 years. They've gone from 1.6 trillion now to 9 plus trillion. Uh, my joke about this is it's the largest aid program in the history of the world. And, the, uh, and you will see that um, from, uh, in, during the crisis, they went down by 400 million billion. You can see the little dip, but they did use this insurance, but it was a tiny fraction. It's kept on shooting up. And the reason is that the emerging world in aggregate, and China in particular, which is the great big wedge at the bottom, but it's not only China, it's lots of others have decided the last thing they want is ever to be net importers of capital. They want to be net exporters of capital. So, and since the private sector, they don't trust to do it, the private sector might actually go the other way. Government has done this. So this is a government decision. And so government policy is absolutely decisive. And this creates um, these imbalances. The problem is that the domestic counterpart in the developed world of the net import of capital is now and will remain huge fiscal deficits. They are completely interlocked. We cannot get rid of the fiscal deficits without changing this. So this is rather a big adjustment problem. And with that, I will just make my conclusion. I think I've just about done my 20 minutes. Um, here are some really big issues that arise. If you think about the world I've tried to find, the huge changes, which I think are very compatible with what John says. Are we, with these incredible changes in income distribution, 
in, uh, in, uh, in equality, the openness to the whole world, the movement of people, the, and the profound fiscal changes associated with what we've talked about. Are we going to be able to remain open and democratic in the West and in other countries which have moved in the direction? Uh, is there any hope that the world can provide the extraordinarily large range of global public goods which will be needed to manage this increased integration that we have? It's not a point he made, but I think very important. How are we going to manage this when relative power is changing at a rate that has never changed before, at a speed that it's never, never changed before? I mean, when the West rose, it took a century or two. This is being compressed into a generation. Uh, and China will be, unless something very badly goes wrong, the biggest economy in the world in the early part of the next decade, or maybe even in this one. Uh, there's obviously lots of questions about the whole panoply of non-state actors in this, corporations, NGOs, terrorist groups, everything. It's not state control. And obviously, at the core level is what is the political and institutional architecture that will make any of this work. It's an extraordinary new world we're moving into. It's changing in incredible ways. Very difficult to understand. I don't begin to claim to do so. But I think Jean-Michel set out many of the issues I hope I've added to it. Uh, thinking about this is, uh, is really exciting and really disturbing. Thank you very much. Well, thank you both for, uh, as the applause indicates, I mean, two brilliant uh, presentations uh, ranging not only profoundly across these massive shifts in power occurring across the world at an unprecedented speed, but also highlighting the huge difficulties that this throws up. Um, we don't have as much time as I would have liked to talk among ourselves, but I think we should before opening it up to the audience. So let me just ask you a very simple question, both of you. Do you broadly both agree with, what is, with each other on these issues, or are there analytical points of tension that matter in the, your respective analyses? That's the first question. Jean-Michel, you've heard it. Martin. Uh, I, I think we agree uh, deeply. And by the way, I, I read very often uh, Martin's uh, papers on the uh, Eurozone crisis. And many of the things that we have been discussing around the globe are exactly what is happening within, for instance, say, uh, Germany and Greece. Uh, I mean, of course, the demographic uh, growth pace of Greece has nothing to do with India, so of course, so there are important differences. But the, the nature of the building up of, uh, you, you could assimilate uh, the uh, structural uh, funds that Greece has benefited from to uh, ODA. Uh, there are many things you could make. And the type of imbalances that have gone into, the type of crisis they lead to, and the difficulties to adjust, to change the course of event is of course very, very, very difficult, and especially this balancing between net exporters and net importers of whatever goods, capitals, men, etc., is really making a, a, a huge, is creating a huge uh, social, political uh, p p pr problem. So we we are heading for uh, more difficulties, and once more, I think that the two, one thing that we are deeply, uh, I think, agreeing on is that it's very unlikely that the type of economic projection that we are making on the, about the course of the growth in the coming decades 
is going to be what's, what will happen in reality because of what the structural failures, uh, the fault lines that we have in this world economy. Martin. Yes, I think I don't. I, that was so, what was so disturbing when I read uh, Jean Michel's first uh, long presentation or his set of charts uh, um, around his presentation, and that you've got a book coming, I believe, which so I, I think you should all read because it's fascinating. He had many ideas that I think on these growth models. I thought that was fascinating, these different growth models, the way he put it. But I think fundamentally we agree, and I think one of the most interesting things, just to conclude, uh, uh, um, is uh, um, uh, that one of the things we're saying is that sort of what, what economists call Stein's law applies. Stein's law is from Herb Stein was uh, that what can't go on won't. There are some things here that can't go on, so they won't. And the interesting thing is how they won't. Uh, that clearly applies. This energy future doesn't look very plausible, at least not in that way. Uh, the um, the imbalances story, as you know, he put it in a gentle way. Everybody can't pursue export-led growth because we don't trade much with Mars. And when all your customers, when your customers are bankrupt, your customers are bankrupt. So that model changes. People understand this. The Chinese authorities understand this very well. It's a question of how they do it. So that 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 model won't happen. It seems to me now, it's not a view that I had ten years ago, that the resources question is deeper and more profound. Uh, uh, than uh, I had thought, and so this is a broader question of, of how the the world manages. Uh, you know, Mike Spence's very interesting book, which I just reviewed, uh, talks about a world in which by 2050, uh, essentially 75% of humanity lives as the advanced countries do today. Uh, no, he's not saying as the advanced countries might or might not live. To, well, that is, in terms of resource use, a world so immeasurably different from anything we've experienced. And given the pressure we're already putting on this, it's difficult to see how that would happen. And then there are all the, the, the political institutional changes. So I think there will be almost certainly, as we've seen in the financial, just to the very last point, the financial yeah. crisis. When I wrote about this, I thought we've got, we've got in this colossal lending to the U.S., particularly, this is an unsustainable process. I thought it would end smoothly, and to the extent that it didn't end smoothly, it would be broken by a currency crisis. This was wrong. But it was right that it was an unsustainable process. It ended in a way that you didn't expect. I think that's probably true of many unsustainable processes. So the interesting question we should ask ourselves is why won't some of these things happen? Some of these things I think probably will happen. I imagine we will age unless there's some <laughs> catastrophe. In the sense, what I mean by that, we won't suddenly get any huge increase in the death rate uh, um, for relatively old people, for example. It's imaginable, but it's unlikely. But I think we, what we are describing here is a future which will have lots of shocks in it. Let me just uh, ask you just one more question before I ask the audience to, to, to raise their concerns. And this is about stepping stones to managing this complex. You have a situation here of a world that's increasingly integrated, where the fortunes of countries, the fate of countries, as it were, is increasingly integrated. You have soaring imbalances between these, creating a system that is both extraordinarily full of promise and yet at the same time full of systemic vulnerability as a result. You have increasingly scarce resources and pressure on energy, water, and other critical resources for humankind. You have rising spiral consumption expectations 
across the world. You have governance failures at the multilateral level because that's an order founded on a 1945 geopolitical settlement now looking hopelessly outdated in relation to the power shifts uh, today. And you have increasing evidence of a world of divergence, opinions and judgments about priorities, which is expressed in virtually every international negotiation you can find on financial market reform, the Doha trade around, climate change, intellectual property rights, you know, the nuclear proliferation, and so on. So this looks like, to put it in a nutshell, on the one hand, the world is increasingly integrated, and on the other hand, the systems of representation, governance, and identity stubbornly rooted to territory. Boom. What are the stepping stones for it? Jean-Michel. I'm so sorry to interrupt. This is going to end up on the NSC website, and I can't sit speaking on it. I'll move back. Just come closer here. You're perfect. You could just come closer. I'm ever so Good stage direction. No, we needed that. Thank you. I like that idea of not appearing, just being a disembodied voice. <laughs> <laughs> we will recognize your voice. Jean-Michel, just reflecting on what you have both said and the way I've tried to summarize it very briefly. Uh, I mean, but, you know, how do you, where do you see the leadership and the breaks, as it were, and the changes of direction coming from? Will they just be thrown up, as it were, by market forces endogenously, or will there be some design in this that reflects some intelligence <laughs> about policy at the global level? And f first, unfortunately for us and LSE, um, uh, good analysis won't help. Um, it's very unlikely that uh, politics, politicians there will be in a position to run uh, things at the global level in a way that will capture the nice things and the smart things that we're thinking and change them into policy orientation. So shocks will change things. The way, for instance, the financial crisis has led to this major improvement, if, but of course not uh, sufficient that the G20 is. Second, uh, domestic policies or regional policies may move faster than global agreements. Take China. They say things uh, at the global level that they don't do at their domestic level. Their positions on, uh, uh, on climate change lead them to uh, what would be called an aggressive uh, climate change policy at home that is not reflected by what would be an aggressive position at the global level. So it's very important that we know how, or that we know to, that we keep also focusing on how domestic policies can converge and can be complementary to each other. And there's those policies are influenced by analysis, smart ideas. Uh, so there's room for, uh, for uh, lending on, on a better place. And finally, I would like to raise what is, to me, a, a major challenge, and probably a forgotten challenge. Uh, it's very important that the course of economic policies are changed, say, in China, in order for China to what they are trying to do to adjust and adapt to a more domestic-oriented growth pattern. So they are desperately uh, trying to do that. But we know it's extremely difficult. Japan has never really succeeded in doing that. Uh, Germany is not succeeding in doing that and is probably not willing to do that. 
So most of the builders of uh, uh, imbalances may have very, very difficult, very, very, very important difficulties to, uh, to rebalance their economies for all sorts of reasons that we are not going to address right now. So what is very important is that we do not have an additional 4 billion people in the coming 20 years doing exactly the same as the previous wave of growth. And it's a completely overlooked challenge. When you look at the basic policy advice that is provided to a, a poor, small, or large developing country, the standard package would be, please devalue your currency, please uh, uh, be home to uh, textile industry for and, and you know, uh, make yourself part of the global value chain of the textile sector and steal jobs from China because China is becoming too expensive. Uh, and the way uh, the advice is shaped in terms of uh, infrastructure building, in terms of social policy, would ex be exactly the same as 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Now, let's just imagine that everything that uh, Martin has said about China and India becomes true for Africa with 2 billion people in 2050, becomes true for the rest of South Asia that is not still in this growth pattern. And let's try to imagine the world. It will be even much worse than what Martin has said. So, and at the same time, can we just live with a world where three, four billion people will remain in poverty just because the growth would be, their potential growth would be unsustainable in environmental or macroeconomic terms for the world? This is just politically, physically, I mean, physically infeasible, infeasible. So looking in depth at what, are, what is the new generation of growth model that is going to both increase revenues in the world and help stabilizing the, this world is probably one of the most urgent things that has to be done. And unfortunately, we are probably not given, giving enough importance to, to what is one of the major rebalancing uh, policies that we, we can imagine. I only want to add one point because it should go on. I was thinking about this is an old point which you of course know very well. But if we think about uh, the, uh, the, the the systems order, both at the uh, um, the European level, which you talked about, and at the world level, essentially both were the product of two linked catastrophes: the Great Depression and the Second World War. That was uh, uh, so. The, these were very very big examples of the small example of the financial crisis, in that crises lead to people, they lead to, the, to the, the destruction of the legitimacy of existing orders and profound transformations in domestic policy, domestic politics and international political systems. And you'd have to say that by and large, and we won't need to go into all the detail, uh, they did pretty well, the, the, the leaders in this case. Now the question in a way can be put in another way, yes I can imagine our doing, uh, changing all the way we do things, but do we need the 21st century equivalent of such catastrophes? It isn't very difficult to imagine the 21st century equivalent of such catastrophes on a much bigger scale. Uh, indeed, nothing is more imaginable. Uh, I don't want to, uh, to indicate, but, but uh, just think of the nuclear war, the nuclear issue. So the, the question to me, in a way, is not can we do this, 
but what sort of uh, hor horrors might be necessary for us to do it and can we survive them and the uh, so one would like to hope that we can do make major reforms in advance but if you look at the financial sector and I'm clearly part of the problem here not the part of the solution people people started putting the uh, in the place the reforms after we realized how bad it be and this is a very small example compared to some of the big issues we're talking about if you think about climate change it's clear that if we do do anything to me it'll only be after it's so obvious that it's a catastrophe that it is too late well I think you're, you're, you're unfair to yourself Martin because you were clearly part of the problem but also part of the solution and so, living testimony to the capacity for reflective change and, and, and thinking that through. Now, there are a lot of people who want to ask questions. We'll, we'll take several, I think, and, uh, because time is going to be uh, under pressure. We, we spoke to And we have a very, very talented audience. So I, I will, first of all, go to a, a couple of economics professors sitting here who I've been waiting to jump in. I'll give them a chance to be brief, and then we'll move out. So let me start with Danny Kwa. Thank you, um, Danny Quallen, School of Economics. Uh, two such profound thinkers agreeing so much. It's, it sits uneasily, I think, with this audience. I wonder if I can, <laughs> by being extreme, try and provoke the two of you to, to disagree. And the, what I, you, you have couched the discussion of how the global economy is changing in terms of competition. It's competition for power, competition for ideas, competition for resources, competition for institutions. But a lot of what we're seeing in the world maybe we need to rethink in terms of, for instance, the rise of China in terms of its grabbing resources. At this point, per capita, the average Chinese uses only one, has a carbon footprint that's only one-fifth that of the average American. At this point, despite its dramatic rise, as Martin has shown us, the average income of the typical Chinese is lower than the average income in nine African countries it is still a very poor part of the world. And in fact, this convergence, it seems to me, when viewed in that way, ought to be celebrated rather than viewed with trepidation in terms of the competition that you've described. Thank you. Thank you. Robert, wait. Um, Robert Wade, <clears throat> if you measure inequality, not in terms of the Gini coefficient, but in terms of the uh, remuneration of the top 1% relative to, for example, the median, then the inequality increase, the income polarization at the top is much greater than the Gini coefficients indicate in practically all the major economies, I imagine even in France. Um, and so the question is, first of all, do you think that this is a problem that should be on the agenda of both regional and global governments? And if so, not to mention national governments, but if so, um, what kind of policy measures do you think might be feasible in curbing income polarization at the top? Thank you. Now, yes, let's just go around the room as quickly as we can and take several questions. The gentleman there with his hand up. Can we be really, each of you, now very, very concise? Yes, I just wanted to follow up on Martin's comment um, that if something's un unsustainable, then obviously it won't be sustained. Um, aren't we sort of, we're looking for great reforms and solutions, but um, shouldn't we be looking perhaps more at uh, Adam Smith's unseen hand, that if there's a shortage of resources, the price will go up, science and technology will uh, find ways, um, 
of uh, e economising on resources. Uh, we're tremendously wasteful still on energy. Vast improvements could be achieved there. And uh, aren't a lot of these things just going to quietly go away through human ingenuity? Uh, behind you, the person immediately behind you. Yes, thank you. Perhaps you could, everyone could say briefly who they are, and then be short. Increasing population, the matter is only so much, it cannot be created, but we are capable of changing it from one form to the other. So we need to learn to cut down on our consumption. Even 30, 40 years ago, a scientist used to say that it's only altruism that will save the man. Thank you. Yes, let's keep, where's the mic on this side? Can you go back to the top, right to the top? Gentleman with his hand up. Uh, Alec Basu, question specifically for Martin Wolf. Um, if you became supreme dictator of China tomorrow, what would you do with its dollar reserves? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll just take one more now and then we'll, yes, the lady there with a hand up. Yes, uh, Mr. Wolf, you told a story in quantity, but uh, in quantities. But how is the quality of the institutions in the emerging economies, in terms of the rule of law or democracy or the lack of it, going to influence uh, uh, this trend of, inequ of inequalities or the great convergence, as you've said? I hope we'll come back for another round of questions in a moment. But let me just ask Martin to start, and then have <laughs> Well, sure. these are very deep questions, and we've got 10 minutes, so I'm going to be very brief. Uh, of course, I feel profound pleasure at what's happened. Uh, that I thought was clear from what I talked about poverty and so forth. Um, for those of us who I also spent my early life in development, what's happened in China and India in particular is incredible and thrilling. Um, uh, uh, but when something is done, even from from very poor to poor and then to medium middle income in a countries of this scale, it changes the world. Uh, I agree with Robert. I think inequality in the, the extraordinary inequality at the top is a, is a very big issue, uh, a very big issue. Right at the moment, I have no idea what can usefully be done about it within our present constellation of forces. Answers on a postcard. I'm looking forward to them. Uh, I have some thoughts on this. Um, very difficult. Um, then we got two wonderfully opposed questions. So you could, you're the two questioners, one after the other, can go out and fight each other. One <laughs> saying, one saying the market will solve all this problem, and the second, if I understood it correctly, that if we were decent, honourable human beings, we would solve this problem. Um, I suspect the answer actually is both. Uh, uh, there are externalities. The market will not deal with externalities. Uh, um, uh, the um, the coast's uh, view of that, uh, for reasons Mansell Olson explained, doesn't work. So you need to manage externalities, and it's possible to believe in human ingenuity. How can one possibly not believe in human ingenuity? Clearly, we're very ingenious. The idea, however, that he guarantees that we will always find ways around uh, um, resource scarcity, which don't affect profoundly our abilities to consume. That's just a religious belief. It may be true or it may not be. I hope it'll be true. 
I do hope it'll be true. And certainly I agree that one of the first things we have to do, and that's the fundamental issue, which Jean-Michel pointed out, is we have to make resources, all the relevant resources, seriously expensive instead of subsidizing them. And we subsidize them in many, many ways. That's a, one of the biggest single policy changes. I wrote a, some pieces about the wisdom of um, Ricardo on resource taxation, land taxes actually, rent, and that applies more den generally. Um, if I were supreme dictator of China, um, not a position anyone is likely to give me, um, I would take the two and a half, no, I would take one, two, two trillion of the trillion trillion dollars of reserves, and uh, that would work out at about $1,500 for each individual Chinese person and send them a check. Um, uh, and encourage them uh, to do what they liked with it instead of having it all centralized in the state. Finally, uh, um, uh, far too much of the, the resource allocation in China is determined, in my view, by the state system, but I would say that, wouldn't I? Um, quality of institutions in emerging countries. The view I've tended to take on this subject, and I think I still take, tend to take it, is that these co-evolve. Development generates the, the pressures for the institutions which will allow it to proceed. It doesn't always do so. There are many examples when it doesn't. But we don't need to wait for perfect institutions anywhere. We, we get a process going and the institutions with lack will evolve. But there are some obvious, and there are some obvious signs of this happening. India is a country I followed most closely. And it's clear that in some areas, um, attitudes to corruption, for example, the, the corruption scandals we're now seeing in India are incredibly heartening. They're incredibly positive and important developments because people are really starting to care about it. So I'm moderately confident that in open and competitive societies, at least like this, which is why I remain a Democrat, that the process of development will itself lead to profound pressure from the population for improved institutions. Two, two points and a joke. Uh, the uh, as Martin, I think it's uh, it's uh, really we would uh, we have to celebrate uh, the uh, growth of developing countries in the past, especially India and China in the past uh, thirty years. Now, once more, the issue is about the sustainability of what has been achieved and how we are going to cope with the consequences. And there are many adaptation scenarios that would mention, and I would complement the ones that uh, Martin could have mentioned and has not. One is the return of protectionism in OECD countries. This is a very predictable thing to happen. And by, just as a footnote, in my, in my country, in France, it's a, one of a very important political point that is being discussed in the wave, in the course of the uh, presidential elections, for instance. So it's very concrete. And in fact, if, um, I'm not surprised to see that this protectionist point of view is also carried by the uh, extreme right parties which are gaining a very important uh, room in our political landscape. And my expectation is that this would happen in many countries uh, as well for the same type of reasons. Another good uh, adaptation mechanism is that one stage we will wave, wage a war against China or Saudi Arabia just because they have too much resources, we don't have that, and we have the political power, political power to an extent. So there are many conflictual uh, instances that would uh, lead us to rebalancing uh, the world, and the issue is how, exactly how Martin put it, how can we avoid that to happen? How, what, type of, what are the, the alternative possibilities? A word now on inequalities. 
Uh, they are rising. I, I'm completely agreed that they are rising at a stage that is even more important than you know many figures show. And uh, in our countries, there are very many reasons for that. Uh, salaries have not followed productivity in the past uh, 10 uh, or 15 years. This is a re very remarkable uh, uh, micro uh, and macro economic uh, uh, event. Uh, and not only salaries have not followed productivity, but the number of people involved in productive jobs has decreased relative to the population. Uh, and uh, poor workers, no, we have some poor workers and many people, uh, many poor out of job, uh, out of work as well. So, and one of the, um, and we, one of the lessons that you can draw out of that is that in our OECD countries, we are probably much, much underinvested uh, in men than we should have done in order to cope with the change of productivity and the competitive changes in the world. Uh, we, have, uh, we, we have also, and th there is also something that we should also, uh, we should also accept, and I'm sure that this might be shocking for several in this room, is that as long as we have a reserve army of people, a demographic reserve coming into, as a labor force, it's going to be very difficult to rebalance socially the world. I think that if uh, the um, social justice has made progress and uh, <coughs> social democracy uh, has emerged uh, after the uh, Second World War, this was very much because the demographic balance uh, was favorable to workers uh, and uh, the, the number of people uh, that were, in, well, it was very favorable to workers, to put it to your shop. Right now, we have entered a new world where the balance of demography is unfavorable to workers. There's always somebody more in this world who is willing and able to work for a lower salary and for, highly, for, for, for a job that is more and more qualified because the level of qualification across the board in developing countries, in poor countries, as well as, well as emerging countries, is also increasing. And this very fact is going to create us a lot, a lot, and a lot of problems. And I don't see how trade unions are going to, to get any power uh, in this situation. So before, and it's an urgent and structural task for the world to uh, get uh, uh, back to control on its demography. Uh, and it's a very urgent, uh, very urgent task. And I leave it with the difficulties of doing it. And finally, I'm very shocked that nobody has asked me what I would do if I were appointed uh, director of China. So I'm going to answer this question. Uh, thank you. Uh, I would take the same amount of money uh, that, uh, as, as Martin, and I would invest it in Africa. Uh, and I would, uh, and this would look like exactly like in the 70s, recycling of petrodollars. This led ultimately to the African indebtment and to the African uh, debt crisis. So we would have to be very careful at how, how and to what we would allocate the money. But we need also this rebalancing from the uh, surplus countries to the poor countries in order to create a new uh, rebalancing growth that uh, brings uh, economies uh, in a more current way altogether. This would be a very good place to end, I think, but there are still a number of people who really would like to ask a question. So let's have one short round. Just restrict yourselves to two sentences each without semicolons or colons. Uh, so very crisp and tight. Let's start with the gentleman here. 
and then we'll get just a few more in before we have to finish. Uh, when will the uh, one-child policy in China and the resulting aging, when will this lead to a serious slowdown in China's growth? And what will be the impact in China, particularly as the lack of uh, health service, welfare, etc., etc.? I should have said you can't use the word and more than once. Okay, hello there. Hello. So um, I wanted to know, uh, for the French presidency of the G20, really makes the emphasis on food security, infrastructures, and innovative finances for development. And I wanted to know, like, for these three issues, what would you recommend? Just pass the mic along to the lady with the hand up. <coughs> uh, my question is, um, the one of the solution for the imbalance uh, recommended is uh, tax for the resources uh, globally for using the resources. My question is, what do you think uh, apply this tax policy more difficult in OECD country or in China? From, from Martin Wolf, uh, why did global resource limitations not seem the crucial issue 10 or 20 years ago to him? Great, and, and our final question will be the lady in the middle there with a hand up. I'm sorry we can't take more, but we are constrained by time. Hi, um, you both talked about the export-led models and global imbalances being unsustainable. And I wondered whether um, your view then was that globalization um, has failed and we should now uh, deglobalize and focus more on our domestic economies. Thank you very much. I was going to say we are constrained by time, but constraints obviously can be affected by the price mechanism. So anyone willing to pay a substantial amount of money to me for the next question might still get it in. <laughs> Over to you, Martin, first, and then the last word. Okay. I'm going to leave. I think it's appropriate that I should leave the French presidency to Jean-Michel, <laughs> yes. uh, particularly since those are very difficult questions. Uh, China's demography and growth, it's a really interesting question. And so I'm going to give you a very bold answer. I believe it becomes a significant issue, and it is a significant issue for China, uh, in, um, in after uh, 2025 or 2030. What, and I, I think that's very consistent with the chart I showed you. If you look at China's demography, it, it ages very quickly from now on. But what most people don't realize is that because of the one-child policy, uh, uh, and because the aging is relatively new, right now China has a quite astonishingly favorable demography. So it's deteriorating, as it were, deteriorating. Aging is good. I'm in favor of it, very much in favor of it. When you get to my age, you think aging is wonderful. But leave that aside, that in terms of its impact on the, on the, on the aging structure of the economy, um, they've actually, they're in a wonderful position now. It does get worse, but I don't think it becomes a real problem. It becomes a problem at all. And that's a big question, because I think retirement age is a movable feast in the modern world. We don't, we don't, not doing hard labor, uh, not for at least another 15 years or so. Okay, so that's that. I'm going to pass the uh, to who can most ca cope with tax policy on resources. Um, Europeans are quite good at taxing a lot of resources, uh, and they even seem to be quite in favor of taxing uh, carbon use, and it's about to create a trade war with China and the U.S. To create a trade war with China and the U.S. at the same time over aviation is really sort of, it's, it falls into the Oscar Wilde territory, to make one enemy uh, 
um, uh, it's a misfortune to make two looks like carelessness, but it's a sort of carelessness I rather admire. And so, 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 uh, but if you look at the U.S., obviously taxing resources in the U.S. is basically an un-American and therefore won't happen. And uh, China is very, very interesting on this. It's been subsidizing energy while it's also commercial energy, um, while at the same time being very, very keen on reducing its greenhouse um, gas emissions. There's something very weird going on in China. In fact, it's so weird that one would think there's a political process. So, um, uh, uh, why did I get to resource limitation so late? Well, there are essentially two reasons for that. First, I really didn't expect this sort of growth explosion. I mean, it's quite astonishing, and, and it brings. And the second is, uh, and I admit to this, that prior to the last six, seven years, I hadn't really looked into this question as carefully as I should have done. Um, um, believe it or not, though, I really will deny I ever said this. So, I'll, so you can go out and say that I said it, but I will deny I ever said it. I don't know everything. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Did globalization fail? No, clearly not. We're discussing staggering successes, unbelievable, unimaginable successes. But what we're saying, I think, is a certain sort of development pattern, which and by export-led growth, we mean the process driven by um, huge, um, huge net exports, reserve accumulations, these massive currency interventions. At a global level, they don't add up. But integration of economies remains an incredibly powerful tool of development, and nothing I'm sure that Jean-Michel says or I'm saying suggests that autarky will be a better policy. Uh, North Korea really is not uh, a development model. But before, <laughs> before we hand over to Jean-Michel, let me ask you one question, uh, Martin. It's your, sec it's your first question about societies remaining open and democratic. Because 20 years ago, the overwhelming consensus was that democracies are more open, uh, more, system, more, more uh, uh, encouraging, and more incentives for science. There was a synergy between civil society and politics. They were both more representative and more effective and better at dis producing long-term planning. Now we come to a situation where now, where you in the US, we have gridlock on a whole range of very serious decisions at the heart of what you've been talking about. Uh, European politics is uh, often locked into coalition uh, compromises. So democracies look uh, short-termist, uh, uh, decision-making uh, oriented increasingly to the median voter, and so on. And uh, uh, the large authoritarian regimes, at least the largest, seems to have a capacity to move faster, shift resources more quickly, and more sensitive to these, some of these very questions you are raising. Do we, I mean, does that tell us something serious? I've, this, uh, this is a question that is so profound that, that I feel that trying to answer it in a sentence would be unimaginably uh, glib. But I would have to um, to say, I mean, my basic value views haven't changed, and I remain above all of the view that the real the, there are so many huge problems with autocracies. But the biggest of all problems, because of their nature, is that the variance of outcome is so huge, and most of them are unspeakable. So, it just so happens that one that seems to be working rather well is a very, very big one, and it, it is also dealing, of course, with problems in some sense. I'm not saying they're easier, but uh, I, I'm not at all sure, I'm really not persuaded that this sort of system can work in China for the next 30 years. But it is clear, so I'm not going to go into the future of the Chinese trajectory, but it does seem to me really, really important that Problems we always knew were implicit in the democratic model. 
sort of discussion Mansur Olson has, collect the logic of collection action type problems broadly defined, um, have become obviously for a whole host of reasons, the role of money in politics, the way our party structures at work, the problems of global public goods and so forth, the problems of, of making democratic polities work are clearly, I think, um, deeper and much more worrying than I would have thought 20, 30 years. The, the degree of uh, logjam you see on absolute central issues, quite particularly in the US, but not only there, is very, very disturbing. And it does mean that uh, serious people have to go away and think about what that's telling us. That certainly doesn't mean that I am going to get up and say when the answer is for us all to join the Chinese Communist Party. Sure. Mm. The last words to you. Very quickly, because I will not comment again on the issues that uh, Martin has raised, because I agree on each and everything that he said. I just would just add uh, uh, on the uh, democracy issue that uh, the second champion of growth in the world is India. It may be an imperfect democracy, but it's not a dictator. And I you know, and my hope remains that uh, the only way that we can sort out those very complex. Uh, issues is by talking, and I, there's no other issue, there's no other political system than democracy that allows this uh, talking to take place at the global level as well as in our countries. Just on the G20, uh, I'm going probably to uh, um, uh, to frustrate uh, the person who put the question, but um, I'm extremely skeptical about the agenda that the French presidency put on the table. I think it's wrong in most cases. Uh, the issue of uh, agricultural products is at the same time a good issue, but I don't see how they can be any type of uh, good policy measures on which the G20 might agree around that. So it's an issue without hope. I don't even understand why this has been put on the table. Uh, and most of the, uh, the, uh, on the financial regulation issues, we have an agenda that's been, that was born before the French presidency. The development agenda is also a good one, but it was also put on the table by the Koreans. And what the G20 is doing is just trying to deliver on it. And, it's, and once more, it has been uh, nicely, nicely shaped. And uh, the rest is absolutely uh, the new issues are both uh, irrelevant or unsolvable. So I don't see uh, what this G20 is going to deliver, frankly speaking. I wouldn't have dared to say such a thing about the president of France. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it remains for me to thank you both. I mean, it was an absolute tour de force, two brilliant analyses, outstanding questions. Thank you, audience, and also... Thank you.